Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus chapter 16. As we will finish off, as the Pope is, Sacrifices, Substitution, and Scapegoats, Part 3 of of Leviticus chapter 16. So turn to Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to be reading a portion of Scripture in a moment. I'm so glad you've been holding with us. I hope you've enjoyed these past three passages as well as, or three messages as well as the rest as we just consider who Christ is. Twins, Tom and Carrie, are now 35. They're married and with children of their own. But they still meet each week at the local shop, coffee shop to reconnect. As most twins, they were very close and still enjoy being together. However, as Tom enters the cafe one morning, he immediately senses that something is wrong with Carrie. As he sits down, he notices that she is avoiding eye contact and seems to be hunched over, thinking that maybe she is ill and not feeling well. He asks if she's all right. But as she finally looks up, Tom can tell that she's been crying. Through almost uncontrollable sobs, Carrie tells Tom that their father has contacted her through Facebook, wanting to know if they could be meet, if they can meet. Shocked, Tom's hands begin to shake. And his voice breaks as he begins to ask for more information. You see, Tom and Carrie have not seen or heard from their father in years. You see, their father was very abusive towards their mother. And he eventually moved to the twins, his anger and his abuse as they got older. They still cringe when they recall their childhood and the terrors of living with this man, their father. They've worked hard to forget him and have vowed to never allow themselves to treat their spouses or their children the way in which they were treated. But it seems that after moving out of town some years ago, their father has remarried, started a new family, and is now wanting to reconnect and reconcile with his two older children. Both Tom and Carrie are afraid of inviting him back into their lives And they do not know how to respond to his request. But then let's consider Nathan and Jamie. As they hesitantly open their door in the middle of the night. To find Rachel, their daughter, huddled on the front steps. With nothing but a little jacket and a small backpack at her feet. Stunned to see their daughter, they slowly open the door wider for her to pass through. They have not heard from Rachel in over five years. The last time was filled with screaming, crying, and accusations as the police dragged her from the family home. Rachel was an only child born to a couple who had had children later in life. But she was never at a loss for material things. She was very gregarious. She had plenty of friends, but one day she eventually fell into the wrong crowd and became addicted to crystal meth. Nathan and Jamie spent a small fortune sending her to various rehab facilities, doctors, and other resources, but each time Rachel would fall back into an addiction. 
Eventually they had come to the end of their rope after finding her and her boyfriend stealing from them. In desperation, they called the authorities and refused to intervene during her trial, conviction, and sentencing to jail. But unbeknownst to them during these last few years, Rachel had finally gotten the help she really needed. She earned her GED, GED, required some needed skills for work, and had been recently released and was now needing a place to stay and was seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. Lori slammed down her phone in frustration. This was some years ago when you could still slam down your phone. One of her longtime friends was once again spreading hurtful gospel, gossip. It would be nice if it was the gospel, but it was gossip. And repeating rumors that were spreading like wildfire in their small circle of friends. The hard part was that her friend would come crying, asking for her forgiveness, and promising never to repeat the behavior again. However... After a few months or so, Lori would once again hear of another rumor. To make matter worse, her husband Joe, Lori, didn't understand the problem and wanted just to let bygones be bygones. Scenarios like these three play out in the lives of many of us every day or people that we know. People who have wronged us come back begging for forgiveness and desiring reconciliation. And trying to be good people, we do our best to grant forgiveness, right? But yet we still struggle with allowing these people back into our lives. We find it very difficult to ever trust them again or to let ourselves care or love for them. We chant the mantra, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Yet, Jesus tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who what? Trespass against us. Or as we forgive our debtors. And then he also commands us to forgive not just once or twice, but multiple times. In Matthew, G. Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? To the Jew, it was proper to forgive him three times. Should I forgive him as many as seven times? He says, well, we'll go four more. That should make us a little bit better. But Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times or seven times 70, depending on what scripture you're going there. One wonders, how in the world could I ever forgive like that? That is very difficult to do. Or maybe we go through the motions and proclaim in our minds, I may forgive, but I surely will not forget. That's probably where you and I mostly reside. Many of us have struggled with it. Maybe you're struggling with forgiveness and reconciliation here this morning. There are people in your lives that you're struggling to forgive or struggling to, to reconcile with. Whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me is an idiot. That's a pastoral guidance for you. I don't have chapter and verse, but let's just claim it as it is. Now, I don't want to make the mistake of having my words misunderstood. You may have a very good reason not to forgive or to reconcile with someone, humanly speaking. 
It may be even a very good idea for you to forgive that person, yet also to keep that person at a good, safe distance from you or your family. There are those types of cases. Yet, however, however much they have hurt you, I want you for a moment to stop with me this morning and to consider this. No matter how much someone has hurt you, have tried to destroy you, or to seek to harm you, it does not compare. That hurt, that pain does not compare to the seriousness of our own sin and rebellion against a holy God. Now, that can be very difficult. For some of you might have had an abusive parent or someone in addictive behavior that has harmed your life, or a friend that's dishonest and continually makes your life difficult. The psalmist declares that God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. The psalmist is revealing a character of who God is. However, God is not like us in that his indignation is an out-of-control emotion. No, as Pastor John MacArthur notes, God is not an enraged deity needing something to calm him. No, his wrath is against sin, and it's a judicial loathing of all evil. And as we saw last week, Christ's death on the cross was a payment of a penalty that fully satisfied God's wrath and his righteousness. We sung about that in many of our songs today. So real quickly, for a moment of review, for those of you who were here last week and may have forgotten, or maybe you weren't able to be here, the fourth point as we look at on the monitors, the fourth point of Leviticus was that Leviticus foreshadows the forgiveness of sin in the one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. It foreshadows the forgiveness of sin that comes in Jesus. Now, this is important because you and I must remember this, that God's holiness demands justice. God's justice requires a payment, a sacrifice, and mercy provides a substitute. And so we saw that the main point that we were trying to get through here in, in um, Leviticus chapter 16 is that the Day of Atonement is what we call a propitiation. There is a purpose in this fourth solution that was temporary as it points to something greater. It was a propitiation. Now, what is that word? Again, on the monitor, I'll bring it back to you. And if you can just keep it there for just a moment. The word propitiation carries the basic idea of an appeasement or a satisfaction specifically towards God as we speak of scripture. Now, propitiation is a two-act or two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person and being reconciled to him. Now, last week, we considered the first act of the propitiation of Jesus as the substitute sacrifice that appeased or satisfied the wrath of God. In Leviticus 16, as we see God, we see God's wrath being satisfied through a substitute sacrifice. We see that the high priest offers a bull as a sin offering for himself and his family, the rest of the priest. We see that he then sacrificed one of the goats as a sin offering for the people and for the tabernacle. 
And then thirdly, we see the third substitute sacrifice as the high priest offers two rams as burnt offerings for himself and for the people. The day of atonement was the one day out of the year when God would provide a way by which everyone's sins could be forgiven. Again, the day of atonement was one day out of the whole year when God would provide, not you, but that God would provide a way in which everyone's sin, speaking of those within the children of Israel, could be forgiven and that the nation be made holy again so that they can then approach in the presence of God. Now this week, you and I are going to consider the second act of the propitiation of Jesus, not as the substitute sacrifice, yes, but as the substitute scapegoat that reconciles us back to God. So with that, Leviticus chapter 16, look with me at verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Verse 7, then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one lot, uh, and the other lot, excuse me, for Azelzeh. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Father, we just come before you as we just close up Leviticus 16 and the importance of the day of atonement as your solution, redemptive solution for Israel. And, and then as it points to the work of Christ, again, give us clarity of thought. Keep away distractions and daydreams. And Father, any, uh, any other types of things that may compete for our attention. Father, that may we just uh, listen to what your word has. And most important, Father, may we respond to the Spirit's work. And I pray that you would be glorified as it should be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, thank you. Last week we read that of the two goats chosen, the first one was sacrificed as a substitute for the sin of the people and to cleanse the tabernacle. Now it's time for you and I to consider the purpose and the fate of the second goat that was sent away into the wilderness. Again, I want to remind you of what Bible teacher Wayne Stowell writes concerning these sacrifices. Again, God gave the book of Leviticus to a people already redeemed. This was not for salvation. Okay? They're redeemed people. But the offerings in Leviticus served as God's gracious provision for how one could regain and sustain fellowship with God. And that's important for them as it's important for you and I. For how do we as sinners sustain and regain fellowship with God once we sin? And this connects with propitiation. You see, reconciliation, not just forgiveness, but reconciliation is needed because man's sin have made a separation between Yahweh and themselves. It's not enough to have our sins forgiven. Forgiveness, just as you know, does not change a relationship. Go back to our illustrations from the opening. Tom and Carrie, they have an abusive father. 
He's asking for forgiveness. He's wanting reconciliation. He's saying, look, at I have changed my life. These children that I have now, I, I don't abuse them. I, I love my wife. I've been faithful. But yet, how do two children, how do they escape from that type of abusive uh, uh, environment? Probably every time a door slams or a, a voice is raised, uh, they, they still tremor. One of the guiding things of their whole parenting is don't be like dad. You know, we do that, right? I will not be like my father. I will not be like my mother. Until all of a sudden you hear your mom and your dad's voice coming out when you speak. Or you look in the mirror and say, uh, oh, I've done that many times. How do they easily reconcile and find favor with the new family? Or how about Nathan, Nathan and Jamie? who had to, to let their daughter go. How can they trust her once again? Forgiveness, yes. Rejoicing that her, that her life has been changed, but to invite her back into her room and into the daily routine of your lives? Or Lori and a dishonest friend, maybe one that we can understand more or less. How do you continue bringing someone into your life that you know is dishonest? You see, we need forgiveness. But we also need a right standing before God. You and I need to have favor with God. We need to turn away someone's wrath. Now to turn away someone's wrath is good and needful. We don't want to experience that. But we also need to change our attitude towards the person and vice versa. Hence why I would just share, let me take a moment. As parents, it's not enough to give your wrath to your children if you're not returning them back to your favor spouse it's not enough to say okay I forgive you after a spat if your attitude your heart does not change back towards them you've only done part of the work and I would probably say you haven't done enough of it that's why relationships continue to crumble and and destroy it and be ruined because you're not bringing back in favor your your heart your attitude is not being changed and this is what Jesus does as our, as our propitiation. He makes us right with God. He changes not my attitude towards God, which this is part of it, but he also changes God's attitude and heart towards me. You and I must understand that through God, that though God accepts the sacrifice of Jesus as the payment of our sins, that's only part. You and I are still sinful how can we go before a sinful God? It's enough to be say, well, I forgive you. I just won't send you to hell. But you can't come to my presence into the new heaven and new kingdom. How could you? But something has to happen. Yet his wrath is appeased. And scripture so wonderfully proclaims in Romans 8 that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus is doing something then more than just earning our forgiveness. He's bringing us into a right relationship with God. Scripture also tells us that God looks on you and I now with favor. For those whose sins are covered in the day of atonement, God now looks on them with favor. I love the beautiful picture that the gospel primer paints. Listen to what he writes. God also allowed his future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated by Jesus, 
who bore it upon himself while on the cross. Consequently, because of that, God now has only love, compassion, and listen to this, deepest affection for me. That's how God thinks of his children. And this love is without any mixture of wrath whatsoever. Even when we sin, there is no, oh, I love him, but I hate him at the same time. None of that. God always looks upon you and I and treats us, listen to this, with gracious favor. Always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. This is only possible because Jesus serves as a substitute scapegoat on our behalf. Not just for the forgiveness of sin, but listen to this, for the removal of sins. See, we didn't just need things covered up. We needed it removed. No longer to be brought up. No longer to be, uh, uh, not, uh, to be uh, uh, remembered, even at a distance. Look with me at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 20. It's here in the monitor, but again, I really want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. And it sounds like you are. Love to hear the pages turning. If you need a Bible, please let me know. I'd love to get one into your hands. Look at what he says in 1620. Speaking of the high priest Aaron. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place in the tenth of the meeting in the altar, he shall now present the live goat. Here's the scapegoat. Verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the people of Israel. And only one day, I don't know how long that took. And all their transgressions, all their sins. Now I will say in this one, Dustin, I know all doesn't always mean all, but in this case, I'm going to take all means all. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. Look at verse 22. You may want to underline it. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. One killed, one set free. Again, if you'd like to take notes, a sacrifice was required, a substitute was provided, and a scapegoat was needed. A scapegoat was needed. You see, the scapegoat carried the sins of the people away from the camp. God promises in 1630 that that on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your, say with me, sins. A scapegoat was presented as a substitute upon which the sins of the people were symbolically laid and the scapegoat was then released outside the camp picturing the departure of Israel's sin. One theologian connects this ancient day of atonement ritual with that of Jesus when he writes, the writer of Hebrews makes these connections for us. Leviticus 16 foreshadows the promised high priest who is also a scapegoat who takes away the sin of the people by taking his own blood and sprinkling it in the most holy place. 
You and I need to remember that only Jesus saves to the uttermost. Not only forgiveness of sins, but receiving the favor of God. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. And as you turn there, I want to continue with what this quote from the theologian. For the scapegoat is a symbol of God's removal of sin from Israel. He goes on to say that in all that, speaking of the sacrifices, you and I can see that Christ fulfilled the day of atonement and now our conscience is sprinkled clean because of his work. And that you and I are now brought near to God to worship because he delivers us into the very presence of God. Jesus is the great high priest. He is the perfect sacrifice. Heaven is the real tabernacle where God dwells. And all of our sins are covered forever. In Christ, God has made a permanent end to the guilt of our sin. We are justified in our sight or in his sight excuse me now Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24 for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands the writer says which are just copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to prove to appear in the presence of God on our behalf nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest who has to enter the high places every year with blood speaking of the day of atonement nor for his own for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. That in it, it, that, uh, but as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. I love this. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But just as Israel confessed their sins on the scapegoat and then was cast out of the camp, you and I must remember or realize that God cast out our sin far from us. Look at the next chapter of Hebrews, chapter 10, starting with verse 1. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, speaking of the day of atonement and the rest of the law, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. What we see is all these rituals and all these sacrifices that were really, they could not accomplish full redemption. Otherwise, it says in verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for their blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now, I don't know if you think about it. Imagine, it casts a lot, one goat, a sacrifice for the sins, becomes the substitute for us. But then comes another goat. He too is going to be sacrificed. He's going to be driven into the wild. I don't know how long that goat would, would, would live. I suppose it could live. Goats are pretty uh, resilient animals. But imagine that goat is brought forward, led by a rope by a man who's volunteered or chosen by lot in some way for that role. And the high priest takes his hand and he puts it on the head of that goat and he begins to list and confess the sins of Israel. Now, I don't know what that might have been. It could have been maybe there was a litany of ones that they just said. I doubt everyone was coming and giving their all sins. You know, Dustin gave me a, a, an interesting um, little um, illustration. I wasn't able to really put it in, but I think it was some type of um, survey where people uh, 
believed that they do 4.64 sins a day or was it a week or a, a week or something? That's, that's what they get. Do you, how about you? Do you think you only sin about 4.64 times a, a week, a month, a year? Maybe a day? You know, I've used the three sins a day. That would work over to 70,000 a year. But could you imagine just repeating those prayers or sins? Let me ask, what if you had to come in front of me or from the whole church and you and I had to come and just start confessing our sins out loud in front of the congregation? But as you're picturing that, and the high priest is saying, we broke commandment number one. We broke commandment number two. We broke commandment number seven. We broke number nine. We're skirting number ten. Now let me bring you to Isaiah 53. That gives us a beautiful picture. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Jesus, the high priest, putting on his own head, I've broken commandment one. I haven't honored God with all my heart, my soul, and mind. Could you imagine him having to repeat that words? I've broken commandment number two. I've broken commandment number three. And again, and again, and again, bringing all sins past, present, and future upon his head. If you ever stand accused for something you haven't done, what does scripture prophesy and then share within this gospel? But he opened not his mouth. You know, you and I know of scapegoats. You know, there's always there's the political scapegoat. You know, there's the employee scapegoat. It's that person who's going to take the blame, be quiet, and just take whatever's going to come to him. He did that for what you're watching on the computer late at night. He did that for whatever you're thinking of. He did that for your dishonesty. He's doing that for the argument that you're thinking about having with your spouse later. He became the scapegoat willingly and lovingly for you and I. The day of atonement paints the wonderful picture of what Christ accomplishes as our sacrificial substitute and scapegoat. He stood up and says, I'll take his sin. I'll take your sin. And I'll take your sin. I'll take your hatred, your anger. That thought should lead you and I to worship, to a heart of gratefulness, to a mind of hope, and to boldness and courage. Worship in that the Old Testament prophet Micah proclaimed, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression uh, for the remnant of his inheritance? 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us, he's speaking of Israel. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. We should worship for what he's going to do for his compassion. We should have a heart of gratefulness in that the psalmist sings in Psalms 1-3, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. They can never meet. They're in total 180, never matching up with us again. We should have a, a, a spirit of hope. As the prophet again in Micah declares, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. At this point, I think we should not be going into the sea any longer. Let's get away with, uh, let, let, let that be a frontier that we never go into. But then boldness. I want to challenge and call you to boldness this morning. Because in 1 John 1, 9, he says that we can live a bold, courageous life because he promises that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, yes, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So not only does God provide forgiveness, but he provides a cleansing daily for our hearts. Why? So that we can come before the appearance of God. So that we can boldly go into the throne of God. So that one day we can enter into the new heaven and the new earth with every tear wiped away and a smile on our face and a skip in our step. What does this mean for you and I? This day of atonement and the fact that Jesus is not only our sacrificial substitute that satisfies the wrath of God, but he's also that sacrificial substitution, uh, 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 that, that scapegoat substitute in the fact that he brings us back to God by removing our sins. What does this mean? It means that our sins are not only forgiven, but they're also forgotten by the creator. These are his words. Amen. We are now adopted by God as his beloved children and we're considered friends of God. This means that Satan, the accuser of the believers, is a defamed and defeated foe. The Apostle John writes in Revelation, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accusers of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. What I'm saying here today and what I'm calling you to is a life of worship, a life of gratefulness, a spirit of hope and a spirit and a life of boldness. Because if you are anything like me and I believe you are, is that many times you find yourselves paralyzed by your sin, by your continued lawlessness towards the word of God, either in the letter or in the spirit. You're paralyzed by guilt and shame. You struggle coming to church and you struggle with coming to small groups and being involved in the lives of others because you don't want people to know you as you know yourself. They might find out who I am. 
Or maybe I just struggle with people. Or maybe I've been hurt by a church. I've been hurt by a pastor. Don't want you to be like that. Want us to be a community of believers that know and stand that there's no condemnation. You see that in the bulletin, that ref tunes. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. We are overcomers. We are ambassadors of Christ. Martin Luther, the German reformer, can say it so well. He encourages us with our guilt and our shame and the accusation of Satan and the and the and the uh, what's the, the betrayal of our own heart when we consider our sin, knowing that we're forgiven, but yet we have a hard time reconciling with God. Look at the monitor. He says this. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him, I admit it. I deserve death and hell and what of it? I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ and where he is, there I shall be also. Amen. If that could be your theme, if that could be your heart, if that could be your attitude, then what could God do, or what could Satan do to harm you or to paralyze you? Let us be a church that does not judge, but, but responds and, and, and responds in love. Seeks the reconciliation. As ambassadors of Christ, as the fragrance and aroma of the gospel. He tells us that you and I have one message. That message is the ministry of reconciliation. God is reconciling man to himself. And it's different because it's God doing the work. I think it was Tony this past week said in men's group. Again, men, I want to encourage you. That's a wonderful group. Had said something, the fact that as, as you look at all religions, it's all about man doing something to appease a deity or to do something. Only in Christianity does God come down from the mountain pick you up and carry you up out of his own initiative. I agree with the words of Charles Spurgeon, the British pastor of the 19th century who remarked, think how great must have been the substitution of Christ when it satisfied God for all the sins of his people. And I'm going to add for all time. Again, back to Spurgeon. Think what must have been the greatness of the atonement, which was the substitution for all this agony which God would have cast upon you if he had not poured it upon Christ. As a remark, editorial, I would encourage you, I've been meet, uh, memorizing Isaiah 53, short for, I think, 10 verses, 12, maybe at that the most. Would you spend some time this week reading it and, and just dwelling on it? Just read it every day and just dwell on what's happening there. Let me end here. What does atonement of Christ accomplish? What does chapter 16, as it points to something greater, what does it really accomplish? Well, Jesus as our substitute sacrifice and our substitute scapegoat has secured the forgiveness of our sins. He has secured our favor with God and he has secured the power for you and I to forsake our sin. That's where I want to end. God's done it all. And now he says, I've given you the power to forsake your sins.
It's no good to get all dirty, to come inside the house, to clean up, and then just go back out into the mud pile. But yet we do that. Because Christ has done this, you and I are to obey. Now we're going to be spending some time in the next few weeks looking at the call to holiness and, the, and what the substitute and the sacrifice does. There's a call to holiness. There's a call to obedience. And that's what I want to preview for you at this last moment. So let me bring you back to the gospel primer one more time as the writer reminds us of scripture when he says that when I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as he gracefully maintains my justified or my right status standing with God. When I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me. And he longs for me to repent and confess my sins to him so that he might show the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart all along. Would you come to this Jesus? Would you accept the work that he's done on our behalf? For God has accepted Jesus as our substitute sacrifice and our substitute scapegoat, earning our forgiveness and our right favor with God. And then I'm going to ask you, if you have not done that, do that today. If you want to know how, our elders will be up here at the end. They'll be more than happy to share with you or Dustin and I would do that. But if you're here and you have done so, live it out with a heart of worship, a heart of gratitude, the spirit of hope, and the act of bold, courageous life, of forsaking sin, for God has removed it completely from us. Looking forward to the day when Christ comes to reward his faithful children. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask the worship team to please come on up. I'll ask the elders up here at front for prayer in a little bit. I want you to just take a moment to pause because I know I go quick and I throw a lot of things at you and maybe only a few things stuck and I pray and I'll just trust that the Holy Spirit is going to use those things for his good or for your good and his glory. Would you consider what has been said here this morning, the challenges? Would you consider Christ as the sacrificial substitute and scapegoats? And would you pray and when you ask that God would change your heart and cause you to walk in a way that reflects the beauty, the picture of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 that points to the wonderful work of the cross that's painted in the Gospels. And you would respond to what the Spirit may be calling you today. Would you take a moment to do so? Would you commit to considering this during the week, praying that God will continue to bring you into his presence. Father, you are so good. And Father, we're not sufficient for any of these things, but yet in your love and in your mercy, you have provided a way for your justice to be served. Father, we just want to thank you for Jesus, for sending him, for his obedience. 
who earned not only our forgiveness, but also reconciled us back to you. Father, I thank you for your love for us. The fact that you look on us now with favor. I'll be honest, I still struggle with that. Especially during those dark times when I find myself fighting temptation and failing. Drive us back to scripture and to your promises and to these considerations. Recognizing that our sins have been removed and your love for us and your compassion is eternal and just unchanging. Drive us to a greater strength of faith. Give us a greater measure of faith and grace. We praise in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, we're going to be working towards Leviticus 17 if you want to read that next week. Again, I also want to encourage you, Isaiah 53, take time to read through that. Uh, maybe even start reading, uh, I'd say start memorizing uh, about verse 4, 5, and 6. I think that would just be impactful just in your own devotion and your own life as Satan seeks to accuse you and to paralyze you uh, into just uh, not serving as he, as he caused you to. I want to end with it as well. Would you stand with us? This is just a wonderful song, again, that speaks what Christ does. Join with us as we close out this wonderful hymn. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.